0: my name's alan brown i'm a professor in digital economy and i work in the defense data research center and i'm here with james herbert he's the ceo of pivotal uh, a company that does products and services for data science and ai for large established organizations and he's got a long history of working in the public sector helping them to understand how government transformation occurs how data is used how digital technology is applied so james Thank you for being with us and we're going to talk today about experiences in defense and in government digital transformation with data. So could you tell us a little bit about your history, your experiences in government digital
1: transformation? Sure. So, uh, well, thanks for having me and i enjoyed doing the work with the DDRC as well. So I was very, very grateful for that opportunity to, to, to write and think about this topic. Um, I've got an unusual background, which probably made me strangely relevant for the work. Uh, I'm a ex civil servant, ex local government officer, and an entrepreneur as well, having founded uh, three or four companies, um, all all of which have been involved in some degree of digital transformation across software, cloud, data, new ways of working, etc. and Prior to all of that, a very long time ago, I was in the uh, British Army as well. So uh, I've got a quite a interesting collection of experiences that at the time felt slightly randomly brought together, but made it quite relevant for this piece of work. In terms of direct experience, um, I guess the ones that I drew on for the white paper um, was particularly the time I spent at the Cabinet Office, uh, where I was part of what was called the, the G Cloud team or the Government Cloud team. And that was a period around 2007, 2008, where it was clear that the way that government saw technology and what they did with technology and how technology was procured was becoming anachronistic versus the new type of technology that was kind of spreading around the world, which was primarily public cloud, uh, back then in the shape of Amazon Web Services, but obviously then Microsoft and, and Google as well. Um, and we were part of a team that were asked, again, quite privileged, really, to be able to ask to disrupt how central government in particular thought about bought and consumed technology. And that then went on as the coalition government came in. That was one of the policies they, they stuck with, if you like, and carried on. And that became the the government digital service, um, which, as you know, is now being, being copied all around the world in terms of um both working practice and approach to technology and then I went off into local government to a a local authority where we were lucky enough to be doing really interesting stuff with data so we a lot of this sounds unremarkable now but it's quite a long time ago we published all our spend over 50 pounds we produced the country's first crime map Uh, we did some first open source projects agile putting live workloads on public cloud etc uh, so I was really lucky to do that and I think really at that point thought, right, I can go off from here and actually do this across multiple organisations um, and create some organisations of, of my own, if you like, that carry on doing this sort of work. And so since 2012, which is when I left then, I've worked across Companies House, DVLA, ONS, Home Office, DWP, or at least teams within my companies have worked with all those government organizations.
0: So James, you've got a a lot of experience working in government. What have you learned about government digital transformation and has that also been in the defense area?
1: Well, actually, interestingly, I have got a lot of experience in government digital transformation, but until recently, none of it was in the defense area. Um, And I think there was a reason for that, which was that defense are late adopters to what people term digital transformation, it's only really been in the last few years that they've actually started to engage as a, as a sector with what the wider public sector have been doing for a while. Interestingly, the strategy that the UK government has set out for defence, I would argue, is more ambitious than any digital strategy I've seen across the whole of the public sector. And those strategies relate particularly to data and AI and their aspirations for how we're going to modernise our defensive capability using data science and artificial intelligence. So already there's an interesting tension there where you've got a sector defence which hasn't been as engaged with modernising through modern use of technology over the last decade in the same way that other government departments have, tied with a ministerially approved strategy that is much more
0: ambitious than the ones that those other departments have had. But what have you learned then from those experiences about some areas that you describe in, in the white paper that we have on the website, which is about areas like procurement, about the need to drive innovation, but the challenges of bringing in new organisations and smaller, more innovative organisations. What, what have you learned about that that might be relevant to the defence sector?
1: Yeah, so in in the white, I won't go through them all now, but if we pick a couple of key ones. So we went through what, well, I called it procurement, which makes me feel slightly sad because actually it's not really about procurement. It's about supply chains and partnership and talent. But again, we'll, we'll come back to that point. Leadership was another huge one based on my experience of those wider digital transformation programs. There's the quote I always use from Mark Benioff, which I put in the paper, which is, We don't have a technology crisis, we have a leadership crisis. And I definitely saw that at play in those other experiences. Um, And then finally, but it's tied in with leadership, is talent and how you attract, retain the right sort of talent for this sort of work, but also how you actually make the most of the talent that you already have there. So um, if I go back to procurement um, or uh, supply chain, partnership, whatever you want to call it, One of the huge achievements of the UK public sector dating back to about 2014, which is when we did the original, uh, well, start again, back to the early 2010s, when the original G Cloud framework came out, was that we, the team that built the G Cloud, we didn't really come at it from a procurement perspective. We actually came at it from a, what sort of suppliers do we need to have in. our our base of work and how if we identify those sorts of suppliers how do we make it easy for them to work with the sector in that case it was really the rest of central government and how do we make the barriers to entry as sort of nimble and agile as we can without obviously kind of losing complete control of any compliance or security uh, needs and what we realized back then was that government IT had been dominated by eight to ten huge suppliers, which were nicknamed the oligopoly, and they, the government and those suppliers fed off each other in very constrained, contractually-based, non, non-collaborative partnerships, and they were really, really expensive. They were long-term, ten-year contracts, locked down. If, you, if, if the world changed and you needed to make a change and that wasn't in the original contract, Then it was going to cost the government department a lot of money. No one cared about users, all the IT was internally driven, etc. etc. And then we looked out at the world at the Cabinet Office and realised that we were moving into this era where technology was going to allow you to be nimble, to be agile, to be iterative, to be product focused, which is to say, to be organised around your citizen or user needs, not around your own internal wants. Um, And we realised that in order to do that in the UK we need a lot more SME, so small and medium-sized companies directly involved in delivering these services and kind of challenging the way that that government worked and that defence, I look at defence now and it has a core set of contractors which is absolutely fine, they're prime contractors but they come from a hardware world, they come from a world where you build these huge big Military platforms like an aircraft carrier or a tank or a radar, whatever it happens to be, and they're built as they're commissioned to be built in silos over a very long period of time where everything has to be specified up front when the thing doesn't get delivered for another 10 years. So, to my mind, defence is a little bit where the wider public sector was a decade ago in
0: terms of procurement. The difficulty, though, as you know, for defence is that they do have some particular challenges. Yep. The defence area, by its nature, is has to be secure, has to be well managed, has to be audited in a different way. And some areas have to be more locked down than in others. How do you think that affects what you might be bringing to the table from from the rest of government in terms of its lessons? So I think that's all true, and I think it's probably unhelpful
1: to kind of pretend that the complexity doesn't exist and that some of those requirements around security and compliance and other um, needs are not real because they are. But I think, I mean, I'm going going to look backwards a bit now, but we'll hopefully look forwards with Defence, is looking backwards, I think the mistake that Defence made was if you take the public cloud as one example, so your AWS or Azure environments, what they said was, these aren't secure enough, these aren't compliant enough, these won't work in a defense environment, therefore they're not for us. So they just wouldn't use them, which meant that over a decade they weren't learning, they weren't adapt they weren't adapting their organization to them, they weren't changing things like their talent pipeline, the way they finance technology, you know, all the things that come with wide-scale adoption of cloud. When in fact, what they should have been doing is saying these may not be all of those things yet. But when we look out at the wider world, we can see that actually there's probably going to be three or four cloud problem uh, platforms. There's probably going to be three or four cloud platforms that are completely dominant over the next four years, and we need to actually grapple with that and learn about it because it's inevitable. Whether we're worried about certain aspects of them now, and the other mistake they made, which I think is reflective of mistakes in the wider public sector as well, is 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 realising that technology now is not a project. It's a thing that is continual and iterates constantly. So again, you look at one of those clouds and you say, that's not secure enough for us in, let's say 2014. It probably wasn't in 2014, but it wasn't like those companies were just going to stop. They were always going to build in those features and requirements that you know their various institutional clients had. So I think that going forward thinking about data science and artificial intelligence, they are doing the right thing in those strategies in the sense that they've actually started to engage with them and and embrace them at least conceptually and at a proof of concept level quite early on. And even if it takes quite a few years to scale and do things with them at scale, the learning will be invaluable.
0: I I think both of us also have um, learned a lot from what's going on in the United States, particularly Christian Brose's book, The Kill Chain, which we've both read and, and I think found some really interesting things about what happens in the United States and related it to what's going on in the UK. And the book is very careful to be strong about the difference between the technology opportunity and the challenge that is faced because of political concerns, because of financial concerns, because of the the broader social concerns and how that drives the speed of change. Do you see similar things in what's happening in the UK? Do you see some ways that we might be able to address some of those? Yeah, I, it's it's such a great book. And
1: anyone involved in this field needs to have read it. You don't have to necessarily agree with everything in it, but it's definitely become the kind of seminal book, at least over in the US, to commentate on the future of defence and warfare. So I found it a really valuable um, read. Also made me a bit sad, actually. I've, we discussed this before, that I don't imagine it having been written in this country. Um, it's a shame that someone over here perhaps wasn't thinking in the way that, that Bros was thinking when he wrote that book. It's all applicable to over here. So I've I've read it numerous times. I used it quite a bit in the, uh, the writing of the white paper. And there's nothing, in, okay, we're on a slightly smaller scale, obviously, and we're not the dominant military player in the world. So clearly there are some big differences I think the challenge for the UK perhaps is to take the conclusions and themes of that book and say, in a UK context, uh, in one you know in, on a continent with a more frag- militia- fragmented military setup, and with smaller budgets and uh, actually a chronic lack of investment in defence over the last two decades, what's our positioning? And if the world is more about if you know if we're in a software world rather than a hardware world and it's more about agility, the ability to be nimble, to use data to make decisions quickly, arguably having a smaller defense force might actually become an advantage in that context.
0: I think that also leads us to some interesting opportunities and challenges as we perhaps think about the state of the art and the state of the practice. And the work of the Defense Data Research Center, obviously is to to think about both pushing the state of the art in data science and ai in defence but also to try to establish how we can look at the current state of the practice and move that forward given the lessons from the the government digital service from your previous work with government how do you see that gap and what do you see as some of the opportunities and challenges there yes uh, the
1: state of the art versus the state of the practice is it's such a brilliant point and it was it was it was one of the biggest challenges in writing the paper actually because i didn't you don't want to write one of these papers to sound like you're just being negative or critical, but the the persistent challenge with public sector digital transformation has been a lack of thoughtfulness and a lack of care about the state of the practice. So, if I take the uh, defence strategy for data and AI for the UK, I read it as you would imagine thoroughly, repeatedly before doing the white paper, and Frank, it's brilliant. You know, it's really well written. The people that have written have been really thoughtful. I I think they've called the direction of travel correctly um, into sort of geopolitical and military terms. And again, I don't know whether they've read Brose's book, but it it feels very aligned with with that thinking. So I felt really kind of um, uplifted when I read that. But then in doing the white paper, I did my own little bit of research. And uh, I kind of want to tell you three stories um, that illustrate the state of the practice and the gap between that great strategy and where people are working at the moment. Uh, I can't say names for obvious reasons, but um, I met a data scientist who's currently working in the Ministry of Defence, a commissioned officer who's just left, and a platoon commander. And I thought each of their stories were illustrative. So The data scientist works in a part of corporate services within the MOD. Uh, He's got some really interesting ideas about how they can join up data to be more efficient, to make better decisions and ultimately to probably drive some machine learning and automation. Uh, He's done some quite interesting work within his department, but literally cannot get any data from any of the other corporate service departments. So they're frustrated. Teams frustrated, you're starting to lose data scientists. you start to get a bad reputation as a place to work where data scientists want to go and work want to go and work and develop their career. and why won't why, why can't they get the data? It's not actually really a technical problem. it's just cultural. Mm. It's that the heads of those other directorates clearly are not bought into the overarching strategy for data and AI and don't understand the implications for them as leaders. Uh, in what they need to enable, and I saw that a lot. So, there's a lot on that in the white paper about the, the role of leadership and sort of abdicating responsibility. The second one, which is huge, is about the people model. So, um, this person I was talking to, really impressive character, they had experience in the field, in active operations, they're obviously a soldier, great leader, you know, they'd got to where they had in, in that environment through their leadership done an MSc in data science which the army had um, sponsored so you would think wouldn't you that is a person you want to hang on to they've got everything that a modern service needs um, but actually they just left to join the private sector because they were told that they couldn't go above that rank unless they went into a kind of generic staff role and no one was really interested in your data skills and how you apply them. So again, so over here, you've got this world leading strategy where all of our defense is going to be about data. And then over here, you've got talented middle and upper management who can't actually cultivate a career in data. So that state of the art and state of the practice. And then the final one is a little bit more prosaic, but it was someone who had recently left, who was leading a ranger platoon, which was actually meant to be at the edge of innovation. It was kind of trialing some new ideas in terms of in the field, uh, they had one laptop amongst the platoon often didn't work it wasn't ruggedized sufficiently they ended up having to fill out forms with pe- pencil and paper and then when they got back to base type them in etc etc so it's just you know there's a long way to go to deliver these strategies and i don't think that's being probably referenced i haven't i haven't seen that reference there's there's abstract reference to it being difficult and it being a big change but there's very little detail about What are you going to do about HR? What are you going to do about finances? What are you going to do about procurement? What are you going to do about all the
0: things that actually make this stuff happen? So so maybe just to finish up, we might give a couple of ideas of what could be some of the areas, particularly for somebody like a a research centre like DDRC, looking to look at the state of the art and where that might go, but also trying to invest some time to overcome some of the challenges in state of the practice. Maybe one or two areas that you yeah. think might be useful targets for some of the work that they do and, and others do in this space.
1: Definitely, yeah. We try, and back to that point about not wanting it to just be negative. We, we Each section has recommendations at the end of the white, uh, each chapter of the white paper about things that could be done. So a couple of ideas. Uh, first of all, procurement, going back to that point. But procurement is cited by nearly everyone in the military as the single biggest barrier to modernisation. So that's why you have to keep on... Coming back to it, um, I would step back, uh, and the procurement f- profession needs to work with you know military officers and personnel and and other professionals within the sector to actually define what do they want from suppliers. No, no organizer, even the best organizations in the world, you know, your Microsofts, Amazons, etc. They can't do this stuff on their own. They have to do it as part of an ecosystem of talent and partners. Um, And any buying strategy needs to reflect the type of ecosystem that you need around you. Mm. And once it's identified that ecosystem, it needs to actually suggest the practical actions that make that ecosystem Mm. want to work with you. Mm. I think there's a reference in Bose's book. uh, uh, I think there's a reference in Bose's book about the fact that only of all the multiple unicorn businesses over the last five, ten years, Only two of them focused on defence as a sector they thought they could uh, exploit and both of them had sort of billionaire owners with open checkbooks. So I can speak from personal experience. I've run a number of very successful digital transformation companies that mainly did government work and we deliberately avoided defence for all the reasons described in the white paper. So I think a procurement strategy that actually doesn't start with procurement, but starts with an ecosystem and starts with the sort of suppliers they need. Tied in with that, I think they need to re-look at SMEs. What is tending to happen at the moment is to keep the SMEs involved, they're making them work through the big prime contractors, which means that the SMEs become effectively body shops and have no actual direct input to the thinking and innovation within defence. So I think that should be revisited and the plan set out for how you're going to make it easier for those companies to engage with defence. And then on the people and the leadership side, at the moment, you've got lots of very talented uh, people who have come through obviously the military side of life. You've got policy people that have come through the civil service side, and then you've got corporate service professionals who have perhaps come up through HR or finance or IT. You haven't really got people in a leadership position from really smart data and software environments. People who have led scaling teams doing interesting stuff with with the state of the art. Um, And I think it would be worth looking at secondments, looking at maybe having a certain number of people from those backgrounds on some of the executive leadership teams to make sure that thinking is in there. So there's a kind of whole people piece around the leadership that you bring in. And then also on the people side, back to my point about the person that decided to leave, um, I think you need to look at the job structure, the job evaluation process, the recruitment process and the career development path to say, if we want the best data scientists and the best data engineers to come and work for us, then how do we create a pathway for them to to develop their career? They may not be able to earn quite as much money as in the private sector, but actually a lot of them will be quite purposeful Um, and quite driven by the mission of defence but even despite that they won't stay if there's no future um, and they're just frustrated
0: by bureaucracy all the time. Great I think there's some really useful and interesting advice for the defence sector in general for the Ministry of Defence and for everybody that's trying to drive digital transformation in defence so thank you for the white paper I recommend people go and read it there's some really useful ideas in there and also thank you for these comments thanks James. No problem thank you.